Hey, it's your host Kamea Shane, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, which explores our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. As a community-powered show made possible by listeners like you, we are calling in your direct support starting at a gift of $2, which really adds up for us, to help us sustain and keep the show going. So if you value these conversations, you can join our community at greendreamer.com support. And also, we just recently relaunched our weekly newsletter. So if you want our episodes, resources, and recommendations sent to you, you can sign up at greendreamer.com. And now on to today's episode, where we're speaking with Dr. Christina Lyons. We're oftentimes focused on like war, on more brute kinds of violence, and there are other many violences, right, that are forms of colonial violences that keep happening and that continue to create these forms, as you mentioned, of alienation or, or rupture that really rip people away from, from their, their home and their lands, right, even if they're still occupying th- these places. Christina is an assistant professor of anthropology and with the Penn Program in Environmental Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania. Her current research is situated at the interfaces of socio-ecological conflicts, transitional justice, community-based forms of reconciliation, militarized ecologies, and science and legal studies in Colombia. And her book, Vital Decomposition, weaves together an intimate ethnography of two kinds of practitioners, state soil scientists and small farmers who attempt to cultivate alternatives to commercial coca crops and the military-led growth-oriented development paradigms intended to substitute them. We begin here as Christina shares her relationship to Colombia and what sparked her interest in socio-ecological conflicts and community-based reconciliation. I started working in, in Colombia about 17 years ago, and um, originally I was drawn to the issues around the socio-environmental impacts of Plan Colombia, the U.S.-Colombian war on drugs. And I had the opportunity before I entered into a PhD program in anthropology to work as a voluntary kind of consultant for an international human rights organization in Ecuador, um, meeting Colombian refugees who were now on the other side of the border and getting to know the cases of people who had been rejected refugee status and the humanitarian status in, in Ecuador and why, and why that was the case. And many of these individuals that I, that I met were people who had been affected by the U.S.-Columbian war on drugs and had been aerial fumigated with glyphosate. And because of this, they were um, not eligible for humanitarian status as refugees because it was assumed that they were engaged in illicit um, economic activity. And, and given that this aerial fumigation counter-narcotic strategy was a legal policy and was geopolitically backed by the United States and funded by United States foreign policy money. And so my relationship to Colombia was, you know, I had worked in, volunteered and studied and, and worked in different Latin American countries, really around issues of U.S. intervention, militarized intervention, foreign uh, policy interventions, economic um, interventions in the Americas. And the impacts that this had on, on human rights, on workers' rights, on um, environmental justice issues. And so I came to Colombia through my concern and through a solidarity work with several NGOs that were doing um, policy watch work and human rights um, 
work to support people who are affected by, by the aerial fumigation with glyphosate in this chemical warfare. That was the central strategy for many, many years of the U.S. Columbia War on Drugs. Mm. While I started doing that work in Ecuador, and then I, and then I moved up into southern Colombia and to the Department of Putumayo in the Colombian Amazon, and I had the opportunity through my work with these NGOs, um, visiting farms and visiting rural communities and meeting inter-ethnic, indigenous, campesino or small farmer and Afro-descendant communities in the Amazon to learn of the ways that people were resisting not only the armed conflict in Colombia, that, that you know over 50-year armed conflict, but the war on drugs. And we're living in the midst of that kind of destruction and violence and, and contamination, literal poisoning that was provoked by the, the strategies of the, of, the, of the war on drugs. And the strategies that they were engaged in to do that were really built on transforming their relationships with soils, with Amazonian forests, with plants, with lunar and solar cycles, with all kinds of non-human or what we would call other than human materialities and beings and entities. That was part of a political strategy to not only survive, but also to try to flourish and build alternatives to these kind of repressive strategies that were trying to root them out literally based on stigmatization and criminalization around around um, illicit crop production and, and the presence of armed actors and, and also extractive industry. So that's a little bit about the background that that really convinced me of the necessity to take these relationships, right, that are not only human-based modes of solidarity and alliance buildings quite seriously and thinking about how life works together, the shared possibilities of struggle and, and, and life and death across human and non-human kind of existence and, and the way that that became really pivotal and, and that has always been extremely important to rural communities in terms of their ancestral and traditional practices. Yeah, there's so much in what you just said that I would love to dive into throughout this conversation. But I guess to start, we do have listeners all over the globe, many of whom may not be familiar with Colombia's current state and the struggles that their peoples are facing. So to first preface the rest of our conversation, can you give us an introductory background to the socio-ecological armed conflicts going on and the role of the U.S. government and their interests and the war on drugs within them? Sure. That's, um, I'll try to be brief. There's a lot of details yeah. that I could provide about the nuances um, and the complexity of, of these issues. But so what we have in, in, in Colombia is a multi-layered series of conflicts and historically based conflicts, right? That have to do with concentration of land, of property, of a traditional political class that has not wanted to um, democratize labor rights and agrarian reform that then overlays with the more contemporary bases of armed struggle that have to do with these historical agrarian-based issues, but that were then coupled with narco-trafficking and the uh, arrival of illicit crops and the production of illicit crops and commercialization of illicit crops, mostly coca, but also amapola, poppy, and uh, marijuana in Colombia that then got entangled with financing the war and, and the different armed actors. So there are a series of armed actors in the historical armed conflict in Colombia. We have leftist guerrilla movements. We have right-wing paramilitary organizations and groups. And we also have the public forces, right, of state and military and police and anti-narcotics police. And so as the armed conflict dragged on in Colombia and narco-trafficking became an aspect of financing this conflict for all the actors involved, 
and their territorial struggles to control the cocaine trade and to control populations in, in different territories, regions of the country, like especially the frontier regions like the Amazon and other, and other peripheral regions of the country. The, the U.S.-Columbia War on Drugs, which begins in the 1970s, right? And it has a focus on Bolivia and Peru, originally where the majority of the cocoa production was happening. At that time, Colombia was a, was a commercializer, was transforming and commercializing the cocaine, but not producing it. And with that focus of the U.S. Columbia War on Drugs beginning in the other Andean countries, eventually all of the production chain moves into Colombia. And by the late 80s, um, and in the 1990s, Colombia consolidates the entire production, commercialization and of cocaine, which is mostly for consumers in Europe and the United States. And so the original counter, uh, you know, insurgency strategy of the Colombian state gets entangled with the war on drugs and especially the U.S. backing of the war on drugs, which I, which again began in the 1970s, but particularly becomes, um, much more clear when Plan Colombia in 2000, which is the um, primary U.S. foreign policy, war on drugs foreign policy, gets signed between Clinton and Pastrana, the Colombian president at the time. And Plan Colombia turns into a way to combine counterinsurgency with counter-narcotic strategy. And, and this really comes to the fore after 9-11 with then President Bush and President Uribe in Colombia, where where these conflations of the war on drugs and the, and the war on terror become very closely knit. And the U.S. funds for the war on drugs, which were primarily military and police funding, so 80% of the money through Plan Colombia was going to military and police um, building, and the anti-narcotic strategy, which was a combination of aerial fumigation with glyphosate, beginning in 1997 in Colombia, and manual eradication of illicit crops and manual spraying of glyphosate of illicit crops. And so we have from 1997 until 2015, when that policy was formally banned in Colombia, finally, aerial spraying of entire landscapes. So not only of the supposed illicit crops, but of the entire ecologies, watersheds, people's food sustenance, forests, soils, and their microbial communities, and, and of course, human bodies. And mm -hmm. so the impacts of that, um, you can imagine, um, in terms of public health and environmental consequences for the long term, are quite dramatic. And the policy was very inefficient in eliminating illicit crops, really just pushing them around, displacing them around the country, and was an exorbitant amount of money to engage in this, in this chemical warfare. So that's a little bit of the, of the background. In, in 2016, Colombia, um, the FARC-EP, the, the largest and longest-running guerrilla organization in, in Colombia, signs a peace agreement with the national government to officially or to formally end the armed conflict between these two groups in Colombia. The Colombian conflict, the armed conflict, continues with the ELN, the second largest guerrilla organization, continues to be engaged in uh, war with the, with the state. But also what we've seen in the, this post-peace accord transition, unfortunately, in Colombia is the perpetuation of violence and, and conflict and the reconfiguration of narco-trafficking, criminal actors, and demobilized actors in many of the territories that were previously the epicenters of the war. I really appreciate this succinct overview, and there's so much more that we could cover and unravel, so I hope to be able to dedicate a future episode just on the war on drugs itself, more broadly speaking. But to move forward, there was an animal husbandry technician and a small farmer known as the Amazonian Man, who I know was hugely influential for you in guiding your inquiries, and he noted to you, 
The problem in Putumayo is that we do not know where we are standing, end quote. And this is a common saying that shows how they conceptualize the ground and soil and place differently than the more literal and physical understandings of soil that techno-scientific research might define them as. So can you share what exactly he and his people mean when they say we do not know where we are standing as a crisis? My um, meeting of Heraldo Vallejo, this animal husbandry and, and, and campesino that I met, and the other families and kind of agrarian networks and alternative agricultural networks that I, that I came to um, meet in and around Putumayo over the last 17 years really um, shifted my, the focus of my, not only my academic research, but my kind of more activist policy oriented work away from denouncing violence simply, which again is a very important work, right? That, that people are engaged in, but was really pushing me to think about not only what was raining down on people, right, through these crop dusters with the, with the glyphosate and the herbicides, but what was germinating up from the ground. And that was really um, exactly what you quoted, was that people were, in this being a frontier region of the country where there's been a series of colonizations, and right, where families are arriving here, individuals are arriving here through different violent processes of being expelled or displaced from the interior of the country through the war because of poverty and looking for economic opportunity because of land concentration, looking for land or becoming attached to these kind of boom and bust extractive economies that have characterized the Amazon since its colonial period. And people who were not born here, or even if they were born here, are from families that are from elsewhere in the country we were realizing that they did not know where they were standing, right? That they were trying to relate to an Andean soil or to the soils that inform soil taxonomy and land classification categories that actually are imported from the United States, from the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, right? And not the tropical soils or the Amazonian soils and their diversity where they actually were located, right? And they were estranged from, from the cycles of life that produced the soils of the Amazon. And of course, like I said, there's a diversity of soils, but I was really focused on um, the hojarasca, this litter layer that's five to 10 centimeters of arable soil, which is, sustains the entire biodiversity of the Amazonian forest, right? And, and of course, millennially, indigenous communities and their agricultural practices here. And so people were realizing that, that really they didn't understand how to become part of these relationships of this nutrient cycling, becoming part of what I call in the book, selva practices, right? The forest practices. And, and that was the problem. The problem wasn't about, you know, the illicit crops or wasn't, was a problem about learning how to become f with, to, to become, not to be from. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. And, and how to, and how to engage in different kinds of agricultural practices and, and livelihoods that weren't, wouldn't be extractive or just about felling the forest, but to become part of those cycles. And that was really the center of the, my research became about, about following those practices, following those kinds of life-making proposals versus focusing on just the denouncement of, of violence and, and crime. Right. And the idea of displacement where land-based or indigenous communities are removed, often forcibly from their homelands and have that place-based relationship severed, we had often discussed this as a way that unique ecosystems have been deprived of the biocultural and ancestral knowledge needed to best care for them to maintain that regenerative relationship and circularity. So this seems like 
definitely part of what is going on here. And I wonder if there might we might recognize another form of displacement or disorientation where even some people who may still be in proximity to or in their ancestral homelands, maybe the lands have been transformed and so heavily pillaged and extracted, which have pried open that relationship of reciprocity to serve the interests of outside forces amidst these conflicts, so much so that the communities and peoples can no longer recognize them as a home in which they can relate to and belong. Yes, exactly. And I think that illicit crop production as a type of um, capitalist extractive practice precisely worked in that way, right? Where that so many people, because of the lack of other economic opportunities and viable markets and even roadways and transportation, became involved in, the, in this chain, this um, illicit commodity chain, right? And became alienated from their own practices and, and from their ancestral and popular knowledges. And were just producing a monocrop for export right, to feed into the desire of, of, of consumers of illicit drugs in other parts of the world. And I think that in, in a lot of my work, what, what I've focused on, right, is not only or really that the armed conflict has been the most violent situation for local communities, it's all the other kinds of violences, right, that, that are epistemic, that are ontological, that are about rendering worlds impossible, that are about negating people's knowledges and practices, and that imposing on them even through, like I said, scientific taxonomy or through agricultural extension packets or through ideas about what is a market and, and what is productive agriculture and what are the correct crops and the techniques to, to grow them, right, are transforming landscapes, ecologies, and people's livelihoods in ways that are rendering them poorer, right, and dependent rather than more autonomous in mm -hmm. types of their food autonomy, but in terms of their livelihoods and political autonomy and their cultural autonomy. Um, and I, I think that's often overlooked, right? Like we're, we're oftentimes focused on like war, on more brute kinds of violence. And there are other many violences, right, that are forms of colonial violences that keep happening and that continue to create these forms, as you mentioned, of alienation or, or rupture that really rip people away from, from their, their home and their lands, right, even if they're still occupying th these places. Yeah, I think it is really important for people to consider the different ways of conceptualizing violence, because oftentimes communities are facing all of these different forms of more abstract to the layperson or more institutionalized forms of violence that are more systemic and chronic and long-term. And so when these communities might act out in physical violence in defense of the other forms of violence and oppression that they've been facing, a lot of times those behaviors are sort of criminalized and people fixate on those sorts of defensive forms of violence to to address the other forms of institutionalized violence that they have been facing. So I think it is important for people to take a step back to look at the more contextualized forms of violence that communities are facing today. And I understand your intention not to simplistically pit one form of knowledge against another, but there is a historical context from the 1970s of what you've named a scientific colonization of the Colombian Amazon that I think would be helpful to weave into this conversation. And you had touched on this earlier as well, but what do you mean by a scientific colonization? And specifically, what has been the impact of this way of privileging a set of tools and knowledge that have no relation to the place it's being used to then guide ecological practices and other policies? 
Yeah, thanks. That's a that's a great question. So in the particular context of the Colombian Amazon, right, I was looking genealogically at when the state begins to explore, do an inventory of its of its Amazon basin, right? And as all states, right, we can think historically about when they begin to engage in soil studies, when they when they look about taxation based on land, right? When the nation becomes in the imaginary, right, as a as a connected whole, <laughs> making of the modern nation. And in Colombia, that focus was on the Andes and the Caribbean, not so much on the Amazonian or the Orinoquia of, of the country until later. So in the 1970s, the Colombian government with support from um, Holland engages in its first inventory studies of the, of the Amazon. And they're doing, you know, uh, mapping and they're engaged in soil sampling and they're trying to do an inventory of the biodiversity and understanding the communities that are inhabiting these territories. And the scientists, the soil scientists that I, that I was able to meet and interview who are now, you know, elderly men, because these are all men, really were, were telling me about, you know, how they were shocked by the fact that they were, you know, from an aerial view, looking at these exuberant Amazonian forests to f- only to find that these ten, five to 10 centimeter, air, you know, Oharaska layers, literally litter layers that weren't even soil to them, according to their scientific definitions, were what lay below. And it was a great disappointment because it did not, for them, signal a potential for future economic development in terms of industrialized agriculture or white, you know, cattle ranching, extensive cattle ranching or other forms of um, industrial production. And this is similar to what's happened, you know, in other parts of the world, in Brazil, the Brazilian Amazon and Peruvian Amazon and other parts of, of the world that have Amazon, you know, that have pieces of the Amazon basin. And so the first um, writings about the soils of the Amazon by these scientists were really stigmatizing. I mean, they were explaining that the soils were thin and poor and acidic and senile, right, literally, Um, Mm -hmm. and they weren't really sure what to do with them, which, of course, negates the ancestral practices and knowledge and the civilizations of the Amazon, right, that that were um, successfully living, growing, being part of the selva and why the stigmatization of the soils and, and happened. And, and that's because the soils that they were looking for were based on scientific definitions, right? Like I said, that came from the USDA. Soil classification systems from temperate climates, not tropical ones, that were creating categories that were based on the productivity of soils, but the productivity according to a certain standard of what is productive, what kinds of crops, commercial crops can be grown. And the Amazon, of course, is strength is in its polyculture, not in its monoculture potential, right? In the biodiversity, the amount of medicinal plants, fruit, nuts, tree varieties, um, all the fauna that that supports, um, the diversity of birds, the, the water sources here. I mean, right, all these other things that are not, that cannot be understood through just commercial agricultural modes of, of analysis, right? Of, of defining priorities. And so originally these stigmatized representations of of the soils of the Amazon were published and and really um, troubled any kind of economic model and continued to play or to haunt the ways that development policies for the Amazon were formulated. And eventually, as I as I write about, so not only these kind of racist representations of poor soils, quote unquote, made poor people, hence indigenous people were impoverished according to these representations. But then later, through the war on drugs discourses of U.S. The, the USAID, that the poor soils made criminal 
livelihoods and more propensed for criminality, right? Mm -hmm. Illegal, illicit activities. And so we see this continuation from a racializing discourse to a criminalizing discourse over, you know, decades. And unfortunately, this has really come to, to plague the Amazon in the sense that there has not been state support for what we would say would be Amazonian based development, right? Like understanding the kinds of ecosystem services, ecotourism, scientific tourism, Amazonian agriculture, and the, all the, the things that the Amazon provides, right? And the kinds of economies that could flourish here. And unfortunately, there's been only an extractive look. An extractive, on the one hand, extractive boom and bust economies that go back, like I said, to the colonial period. And now we, we see this in the form of um, oil, oil drilling and, and industrial mining projects that are encroaching on the Amazon and proliferating. Or on the other hand, as a war zone, right, where illicit crops and illegal armed groups and then the supposed communities that were supporting them needed to be eliminated, needed to be eradicated and need to be domesticated. And I think, unfortunately, in Colombia, I mean, I'm talking about the particularities of Colombia, but many of these issues, um, like I said, um, traverse the whole Amazon basin, right? And the ways that nations have tried to deal with their Amazons and the peoples of the Amazon. Mm. I think a lot of this illuminates how critical it is for people who have place-based relationships with their landscapes to be the ones to lead ecological and land care practices and to also define development in their own ways rather than have these few global powers dictate to the world like what that should look like. And a lot of this also brings up very foundational questions like how is soil even defined? How is soil health understood? And then what is being measured to determine the health and fertility of the soil. And I know that various alternative agricultural practitioners that you've encountered who see soil in a more cultural and relational way are working to decolonize their farms. So how have they grappled with these foundational questions and use them to guide their visions in terms of how they want to shift their relationship with their lands and the farmland and soils? Exactly like Soil science and soil scientists themselves lament this now, um, nowadays, right, became very hitched to industrial agriculture at the expense of understanding soils and their relational and their historical and all of their ecological roles and functions and, and relations. And that means that the sciences of chemistry and physics really dominate soil science because of the interest in precisely in chemical inputs and in the structure of soils for industrial agricultural purposes. And not the biological life of the soil, life in the soil, the microbiological life of the soil and life in the soil that actually makes soil soil, right? Soil is a mix of minerals and air and water and living organisms. And, and so unfortunately, right, this dominant science is within soil science that, that kind of um, invisibilize the other, the importance of understanding the biological and ecological life of soils. And I think that is precisely what the farmers and the alternative agricultural practitioners and networks that I've had the opportunity to accompany and learn from, that's where they're focused on. They're focused on, right, not what's a good soil, what's a bad soil, what is the soil good for, right? It's It depends, right? It depends on, on all soils are good soils, right? It depends on what we want, how we want to relate to them. And if we're trying to force them to do things that we want or if we're trying to understand 
what relations these soils are part of and what kinds of life fostering capabilities they have. And I think that especially the farmers here in the Amazon taught me that, you know, doing a chemical test of the soils really was useless because all of these chemical tests would just come back saying the soil was, you know, toxic, was, was acidic, was, was bad. And, and really there was ways that on the farm themselves, they could, they could understand the kinds of um, how to recover soils that were, that were degraded, right? Um, how to foster more life how to cultivate in a different way that was following the logics of the selva, of the Amazon, right? Versus trying to, to tame and trying to domesticate the Amazon, right? Through felling, through burning, through clear cutting, through monocropping. So there was all kinds of different gardening practices, all kinds of different relationships with seed diversity, agrobiodiversity, trying to uh, return to, you know, agricultural practices based on the lunar and solar cycles, et cetera, right? That were, that were, were for them about not only regaining their autonomy, economic and food autonomy and political autonomy, but freeing soils from extraction, from exploitation, from laboring in ways that were exploiting them. And I think that's really interesting. And that's, and that's, a, that's a political struggle across beings, right? Not just for, the human, for mm. humans, but, but for other life forms that have been that have been trapped in, in the logics of capitalist and neoliberal and privatizing logics. And I think that was really, for me, such an inspirational, not only conceptual work that they were doing, of course, but material practices and recovery of knowledges and practices. Yeah. And I think the way that you speak to soil, as you learn from the peoples you've encountered, actually goes beyond the biology of soil, too. So to lay the grounds for my next question, I want to read this powerful excerpt from you. You say, soils defy modern dualism between nature and culture and, quote unquote, living bios and the, quote unquote, non-living matters of geos. As such, they also trouble modern temporal divides between past, present, and future. There's no final material erasure of the past in the sedimented and residual fabrics of their recycling bodies. When a horrible event occurs in a place, many rural communities in Colombia and elsewhere say the soils, plants, trees, and other elements and beings retain this violence, end quote. As we speak, what's been on my, on my mind is this field of regenerative agriculture, which is kind of trending as this quote unquote rediscovered way of tending the farmland that can heal the soil, take into account the biology, help to draw down carbon to serve as a solution to the climate crisis. And what stands out to me is that the dominant field of regenerative agriculture, even if they attribute the practices that they use to various indigenous cultures, they do take on that more techno-scientific way of seeing the soil, of defining and measuring soil health, which tends to exclude the memory of traumas and violence embedded in those layers of the land, therefore, which also largely excludes the need to heal indigenous communities and relationships as a part of the regeneration. So I'd just be curious to hear if you've had a chance to think about the dominant discourses around what it means to regenerate and improve soil to reverse ecological breakdown and anything else that comes to mind for you here. Yeah, and I think um, there's a lot of potential in conversations and dialogue between these different paradigms and, and really ontologies, right? When you think about think about agroecology and permaculture and organic agriculture and restorative agriculture and, and, and these other processes or movements um, or paradigms that, that you mentioned, right? 
Um, so it's not to say that they're mutually exclusive, but I think that as the farmers here in, in Putumayo taught me, they're not agroecologists, right? They are Amazonian <laughs> farmers. The ways that they learn or how they have learned and unlearned practices is based on their relations with this place and with all the beings, the organisms, the entities, the spiritual forces as well that are part of this world, which is different from the science of ecology, although can be in conversation with it, right? And agroecology has different um, lines of of thinking and practice, some more politicized, other more scientific, right? And of course, I've, I've had a chance to converse with different scholars or different practitioners in these fields about these differences. So I think that it's important to look for the potential for dialogue and collaboration and solidarity without erasing the differences that are important, right? That, that are important to the different histories and the genealogies behind how these practices carry on and continue on and which ones have more power or circulate more than others do, right? And and if they're if unfortunately we're invisibilizing or marginalizing different communities in the process, and and I think that that's um, something that that's also thinking about globally where these practices are emerging from, ones that are coming out of the global north or in post-industrial landscapes versus practices from practitioners, ancestral, you know, indigenous and um, popular processes in the global south. And the different histories of colonization, but the different histories of modernization, industrialization in those places. And the ways that it's really important for scientists, but also for local communities, lawyers, <laughs> and, and community practitioners, right? Like finding these interdisciplinary and intercultural conversations that can only make scientific practices and non-scientific practices stronger together, right? I think versus pitting them against each other. But I do think that it's very clear to the farmers and to the rural communities that I met, right, that they need to be more suspicious of anything packaged up as science because science was often hitched to neoliberal agendas or industrialization, right, that was always negating the reality of small farmers, the economies of small farmers, the family structures of small farmers, and their ways of relating to place and to soils and, you know, other, other organisms and beings. I love the approach of definitely not wanting to exclude, but also recognizing that there are different power dynamics between the different sets or forms of knowledges that are being pushed. And oftentimes, those closest to the land, their lifeways, their place-based knowledges tend to be more marginalized in comparison with the top-down solutions that are often imposed onto these communities. And something else that all of these inquiries have led you to is to rethink the relationship between life and death and materiality and politics under everyday conditions. And as you say, how struggles to live well are never separate from creating the conditions for dying well. So what wisdoms have you personally gained from looking at all facets of decomposition and recomposition in this more holistic way? And what has that meant for you when processing our varied eco-social conflicts? Yeah, so it was very, um, as I said, inspirational for me to learn from the Oharaska, right? In this, exactly the cycling logic, this recycling logic that cannot be ruptured, that there always needs to be processes of dying, of decomposing in order for life to germinate which is quite different from a kind of stark binary between life and death, right? And, and, and thinking very seriously about dignified ways of dying and death versus violent ripping 
massacring, genocidally taking of life, right? And, and the stakes of that and for whom. And, and again, these are stakes for, for not only human lives, but, but for other lives in the territories. I think that was very something that was very, um, very important for me to learn, especially in a context of an ongoing war, on, you know, the armed conflict, but also this war on drugs and, and chemical warfare components and thinking about that people's struggles weren't just for what more has, you know, been popularly written about this BMVV or living well, but about how to regain the capacity or the possibility to die well, to die in a dignified way that would be about dying back into place, recycling back into your homeland, into your territory versus being ripped from, from that. And I think for me that there's no separation in, in those struggles and the proposal of living well is also about you know, about dying well, as, as you mentioned. And, and I think that's, you know, obviously that, that became something very central to thinking about how life carries on in the midst of war and, and structural violence. And so that, and that was, you know, all, all due to the Oharaska, like the Oharaska inspired in both a philosophical, but a very concrete political sense. Think about this continuum of life and death versus the binaries that are often very, um, Dominant in not only scholarship and in theory, but but really in the way that policies are 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 devised. And yeah, so I think I think I can thank the Haraska, <laughs> mm-hmm. really um, this 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 litter layer um, for for providing the inspiration and teaching those kind of lessons. Yeah, and thank you so much for passing what you've learned and your inspirations onto us here as well. Before we go into our concluding fire round questions, what else do you feel called to share in this moment? And what are some of your calls to action or deeper inquiry that you'd like to invite our listeners to walk away with? Yeah. So I think, I mean, just briefly, I mean, for me um, in the the last few years, especially after the official signing of this peace accord and seeing the perpetuation of violence and thinking about what is peace, how do you construct peace? In, in damaged landscapes, like what does justice mean when violence continues? What is tra- the transition to what, right? When we think about transition in, or restorative justice practices, I think that the only things that really have been hopeful for me are thinking about bettering the manner of living conflicts, of inhabiting conflicts, rather than trying to imagine in this fictitious way we can just eliminate them. Because Eliminating conflict also is about depoliticizing and also it's quite violent when we think we're just going to build consensus and, and, and forcibly oppose, impose that consensus on, on diversity, right? Diverse ways of thinking, diverse ways of being. So I think that for me, like bettering conflict, how do we better the way we live our conflicts? There are so many of them, right? And um, not only are socioecological conflicts, but of course political are strictly human-based conflicts. So I think on the one hand, thinking about bettering conflict and also really about the potentiality of alliance building and, and, and the need for all kinds of alliance building that can be partial, that does not eradicate the difference, right? That, that respects the diversity. And that's often um, surprising, you know, unexpected alliance build, alliances, um, I think are, are really important now. And especially um, the way that that brings together transdisciplinary practices, but um, diverse ways of thinking and being and creating space space for that. And I think that's, that's um, crucial for professional, um, for community organizing, for our political um, questions, um, for climate change issues, you know, um, all around the board. So those are just two things that I'd say like a call, a call to um, better conflicts and to, you know, look for more alliance building possibilities and potentiality.
What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Yeah, so I think the um, a book that, that recently has been very um, profound for me is the novel The Overstory by Richard Powers. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's just an amazing journey into the life and liveliness of trees and those humans who are allies in defending the worlds of trees, but as well as those who want to turn them into resources. I just think it's a wonderful, wonderful novel. What are some personal mottos, mantras, or practices that you engage with to stay grounded? I think to stay inspired and grounded, I just keep trying to find ways to do public engaged scholarship. That's that's really the center focus of um, how I inhabit the university and academia, but you know, research and and how to be a practitioner in the world. Mm. And finally, what are some of your biggest inspirations right now? I think right now, what I find inspiring amidst you know a lot of despair and mourning <laughs> that's happening. Um, is the growth in, in support for transdisciplinary scholarship and practice, which I mentioned several times, right? Between the sciences, whether they're natural and social, the arts and diverse communities. Another inspiring um, situation right now for me is, is the decolonization of Western law that we're seeing mm. in rights of nature sentences, but in, in intercultural legal frameworks that are emerging in many countries and many places. Um, so I think that that's another inspiration. And and lastly, I would say the role of youth in recent uprisings and social mobilization around the world and the linking of environmental justice and social and racial justice struggles in these movements, I think, is tremendously inspirational and, you know, is providing important lessons for us all. Well, we are coming to a close, but Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Christina's work, you can head to her website, christinalyons.com, and you can also follow her on Twitter at christinalyons17, on Facebook at christinalyons, and on Instagram at christina.lyons.10. Christina, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been um, an honor to be in conversation and to learn from you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Well, just to thank you and to thank the Green Dreamers for this invitation. It's been wonderful to have the conversation. And I would say, obviously, that we all need to keep dreaming. We need to be hopeful and to know that justice is not just for the sake of our lives or for human lives, but that justice is a shared um, struggle across all life forms and death of life and death. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To support our community-powered show to continue starting at just $2 or to make a larger tax-deductible donation, you can head to patreon.com slash greendreamer. Also, if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is American Trilogy by First Nations Elvis, provided to us by Indigenous Cloud. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 